Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. We interview artists, curators, and scholars about ideas and art that has inspired them and influenced LDS culture. This week, we have an interview with Brad Kramer, the owner and founder of Writ and Vision, a book and art store, which is not doing it justice, uh, that is based in Provo, that has been at the center of a number of uh, very thoughtful and influential exhibitions over the past several years. It was founded three years ago, and uh, Brad will walk us through the founding, uh, the genesis of, of, uh, of Written Vision, and talk us through up to an exhibition that will be opening up here very soon. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Welcome, Brad Kramer. We are thrilled to have you here for, uh, for an interview. It's good to be here. Thanks for, thanks for the invitation. I got a lot I want to talk about. I've got a I've got a long list of questions. Get get strapped in. I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, let's just start with the very basic. Written vision, proprietor and owner. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the difference between proprietor and owner? Maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's just like the the version of legal and lawfully, right? I think a but, proprietor. There's the implication that you also like run the show rather than just you're you know, there. Uh, yeah, I like it's. Yeah, I should have looked that up even before I brought it up. But you were there. And you are a, a, a presence. It is, it is a place where... Do you employ anyone other than yourself? Periodically, I have interns who are basically looking for CV lines. And yeah. it's kind of funny. I've never had to formalize this process. But every summer, I'll get an email from somebody at BYU, an art student, an art history student, who uh, wants to you know, apply for a job at a museum or a gallery down the road sometime. And they're like, can I come work for you? I know you probably can't pay me. And I'll pay them commissions on art sales, and then they'll work five or ten hours a week. What a great thing. Really mentoring another generation of people that way. That's fantastic. That's probably a little generous, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, been, it, it's, been, uh, uh, it's been nice to just kind of a, like a pressure valve on me. Yeah. So for the uninitiated, written vision, the elevator speech, what, what, how, would you des- how do you describe it to people when they say, what is written vision? Um, it's, it's a hybrid. It's two things at once. And it's a hybrid, both in terms of business model and in terms of like sort of underlying ideals or whatever. Um, it's a, it's a contemporary art gallery and, uh, used in rare bookstore. And there's a strong notion of like community building or, or sort of like being a cultural center behind it as well. Um, it it helps if you know a little bit about the origin story. Um, when I was dissertating, when I was writing my dissertation, uh, you know, five years ago, four years ago. And for those who don't know what you did your PhD Sorry, and yeah, master's I, in. Yeah, I did, a, I did a master's in American history at the University of Utah and then a PhD in anthropology at the University of Michigan. And after my coursework was done and I'd done my exams and I was writing the dissertation, we moved back out here. And I was working in Mormon publishing. I was working as a publicist for Greg Coford Books. Um, and one of the things I liked to do is anytime we had a book that was releasing or anytime we had an author that was going to be in town, I liked to try to schedule some kind of an event. And I usually like to do that in the form of a panel discussion. And I had a friend named Ryan Roos who owned this little bookshop called Zion's Books down in Provo. And I would regularly schedule things at his store. Um, And it was turning into a pretty cool kind of recurring thing. Like once or twice a month, I was was almost like his de facto sort of public events manager. 
Um, and we were doing these really cool like panel discussions with important figures in Mormon studies uh, pretty regularly. Was there a particular angle of the kind of authors you were having in Mormon studies, or were you just interested in any warm body that was a Mormon scholar? Um, I mean, it was certainly like Coford's stable of authors, and Coford is kind of... Um, uh, it, it, I'd say in terms of like any kind of you know balkanized ideological divisions that exist in Mormon studies or... Um, or uh, uh, Mormon publishing, Coford pretty successfully occupies a kind of middle ground. And then there's also a focus on theology and philosophy in a lot of Coford's publications. So um, broad, broadly speaking, it, it meant that we were, um, besides the authors, that there would always be interlocutors, there'd always be panelists that I was inviting you know, very often just like local scholars or authors. And so we were sort of trying to make it into like a very ideologically neutral place that was thoughtful, that was um, critical in the best sense. But we didn't want it to feel like um, uh, something you'd encounter at Deseret Book or like a Mormon Stories hmm. event, you know. We didn't, didn't really want it to feel like Sunstone except in the sense of being just like a very welcoming space. And after a while, um, Ryan got an opportunity to um, relocate, to move into his, you know, dream house, pioneer house in uh, Manti, and he wanted to, he wanted to open up a college bookstore um, in, uh, you know, adjacent to Snow College. And so he was thinking about just liquidating. I think he'd maybe even had some offers or something, but um, just shutting it down. And, and I, when he was telling me about it, he was saying, you know, the one thing that I kind of feel bad about is it feels like there's a, we started something here and we can't really follow through on. He's like, you don't want to buy it from me, do you? And I said, absolutely not. And at this point, you were thinking to yourself almost purely in the publishing sense, right? Not in the sense of, I want to be a shop owner and... No, I mean, I, I at that point, I was still like very my long-term plan was still very like academically oriented. You know, I wanted to go in the academic job market and get a tenure track job somewhere. And, and at the same time as like the market for anthropology PhDs was definitely contracting. The job market was not looking, looking good. And I was, I completely dismissed it out of hand uh, at the outset. Um, but a couple weeks later, it, it sort of like lingered in the back of my head. And a couple weeks later, I was having a conversation over lunch with Kirk Richards, who was just a friend, you know, uh, a, a good friend and um, prolific painter and a prolific painter and just an all around good guy and sculptor, I should say. I don't want to mirror him to yeah, just the, one medium. Yeah. Um, and he uh, and, and I had talked Kirk uh, into consigning some of his work in Ryan's shop. I thought it'd be a good place for exposure and be kind of a win-win situation. Ryan could have beautiful art on the walls and if anything sold, you know, they'd both, they'd both be the better for it. And so I kind of mentioned to Kirk that he, he was probably going to have to, he'd probably be hearing from Ryan. He's probably gonna have to go pick up some of his stuff and because Ryan was closing it down and that de developed into a conversation um, between me and Kirk over the course of which the idea emerged of, can there be an art gallery in Provo? You know, there are, this, there, there are a lot of artists in Provo. 
Yeah, this is a big question. Yeah, it is. This, this, and and can, if you don't mind me just chiming in here for a second, this is something that I've and a lot of people have talked about for a while. And it's not just in our gallery. It's that here you have, I think in 2015, there was this U.S. World Report study that showed there were more millionaires per capita in Utah Valley than anywhere in the United States at the time. However, if you're looking for fine dining, and a lot of those people have lived all over the world, not just as Mormon missionaries, but stationed by corporations. Mm -hmm. And so here you have this this kind of strange um, just deficit of high culture in that that has been there for a while arguably mm-hmm. at the same time you have a lot of wealth and sophisticated you potentially sophisticated people yeah. that whose needs aren't being met and there is not has not never been really a high end art gallery there was a there was an art gallery as far as i gather i don't i was i was in michigan for this but i gathered there was an art gallery for a while that was run by graduate students in in provo and i don't know what the fate of that place was exactly um, and there are certainly places where you can buy consigned fine art and, and you know, and, and, and there's a, you know, a great, there are great museums nearby. There's the Museum of Art at BYU. There's the Springville Art Museum. There's yeah. even the Covey Art Center, um, which, which has a, 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 a sort of gallery. It's not a commercial yeah. gallery. And, but, I, and I'm not ignoring any of those things. It's just but having, no, you're right. There really having is interviewed a, um, almost every member of the Mormon Art and Belief Movement. Mm-hmm. There was a period from the late 1960s up until the 90s where they just felt like they had to go everywhere, elsewhere. Yeah. And, you know, I, I talked with a lot of, I mean, because a lot of the best, the most sort of prolific and most famous Mormon artists live in Utah Valley. But they were, they're being represented in galleries in Salt Lake and in Park City and maybe in St. George. Virginia. Or, you know, Beverly or, Hills, around, New around York, the country, all over the even, yeah, everywhere. even locally, like there was just nothing there. And so I just asked Kirk what he thought. And he said, at, at first he was pretty like optimistic and then he kind of seemed to run with it. So the, the, it wasn't just that Kirk um, was encouraging up front, but then like a couple days later, I got this email from him. He's like, okay, this is what I think you should do. I think you should do it. And I think you should show me. And I'm going to give you a list of the first year year's worth of shows that I think you should do and the artists that you should reach out to and stuff. And, and I was like, whoa, he's, he's actually, and the thing is we didn't even actually do that list or anything other than that I showed him first. Interesting. Um, but that was a huge shot in the arm too. I mean, for somebody like Kirk who has a, there's, you know, a really strong demand, a really solid marketplace for his work, for him to be willing to give me that initial shot in the arm by just, um, be, ag- agreeing to let me exhibit and sell his work in the first place. You know, that was pretty huge. And this was yeah. just over three years ago. Well, this this makes me wonder something then. If you've got... So I've got this pet theory I've been playing around with for a while. It's uh-huh. not originally mine, but I think it has particular uh, ramifications for our time and place. Uh-huh. That every art ecosystem needs four things. It needs uh, four legs. First one, people making art behind these artists then you need people buying and selling it mm-hmm. second leg third one you need critics talking about it mm-hmm. and or scholars critics scholars just a discussion about it and then you need fourth you need a destination where it's canonized like a, a museum right or somewhere somewhere that it's going to go and the question that this brings up of number number uh you're talking about legs one and two right you say i'm thinking about doing a place and 
there's this pent up demand in Kirk's mind. And I think he's typical of other people of, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I've got a list of people. Let's do this. Yeah. Right. Like I'm ready. Was it met on the other side, that other leg with a pent up demand of people who thought, I've never seen this, these kinds of works before here locally. I'm in. I'd say there. I'd say that it was, but it wasn't. It wasn't explosive or anything. It's something that also has sort of had to develop, and so that's that's part of where the hybrid, the hybrid nature of the of the of the thing is. So I began to have this idea of well, if you ha- if it's just an art gallery, like if 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 you if you take over this bookstore and just transform it into an art gallery, then it's. I mean, I, I I actually don't know how people would respond. Like people in Provo would respond to just a straight up commercial art gallery that looks and feels like a standard art gallery, like, you know, from the street or whatever. You know, you're looking in and in the windows and does it look like an inviting space? But I talked with a number of uh, people whose sort of judgment I trusted more than mine on this question. Um, and in particular, I reached, in, in addition to artists, and in particular, I reached out to Nyland McBain um, uh, be, because, you know, she and her, her husband, Elliot, they're not just, um, sort of art literate people who have, you know, l- who, who have, uh, a kind of conversance in the fine arts and stuff, but they're also very business savvy. Yeah. And so, uh, I reached out to them to just ask for their advice on it. And, and surprisingly, they, uh, again, they reacted with some enthusiasm, but Nylon said, uh, if I were you, I would reach out to Glenn Nelson, who runs the Mormon artist group out in New York. And you know, for those who don't know who, um, Nylon McBain is, she's the founder of the Mormon women's project has let out on the 2020 project. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's and, I, very... and I had a relationship with her because I had helped shepherd her book that Greg, that Coford books published. I had, I had gone to her, she had done a, a presentation at the fair conference and I've gone to her once I was working at Coford and said, you should turn that into a book. You should flesh it out ethnographically Great. and let us publish it. And then she did it. And, and it was one of the best selling books that like Coford ever published. It's a, it's a, great book it's a revelation yeah, it's uh, w- women at church and it's a it's a wonderful wonderful book so you were saying that she recommended you talk to glenn she Nelson. recommended that i talk to glenn and so i just kind of cold called him i mean i think i sent him an email and i was like can i call you i know you don't know who i am and he's like sure and so i pitched it to him and he said i think it's a an idea that has some promise and um and i'm willing to um you know give you whatever kind of like advice and um you know moral support that 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 you might want um but i would i would really want to be confident that you're gonna i think this can work if you do it right and you need to get some sense of how galleries actually work and so glenn doesn't has never run a gallery but he's got the mormon artist group where they pick a project a year and now he's got mm -hmm. the but back then he didn't have the mormon the art center the mormon art center wasn't even a thing he just had experience uh as a collector in new york and just as an art patron in New York, just like had yeah. just been to galleries and just sort of had a, a, a nice intuitive sense of it. And Glenn is Glenn, you know, if 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 anybody ever has the good fortune of being able to to collaborate on something with Glenn, he's going to he's going to bring most of the value to your project is uh, yeah. if my experience is at all um, typical. But so what kind of advice did he give you? Come New York. 
that's where he started. He said, come to New York. And so I came to New York and I was only there for a few days. Um, and while the whole time that we were there, we just went to galleries. I mean, we, we literally went to dozens and dozens and dozens of galleries. What kinds of galleries? Um, it was mostly galleries that just in Chelsea. And so it was just like, you can just walk up and down the blocks. So mostly contemporary, mostly, mostly contemporary. Um, you know, you, some of the bigger ones also do more, you know, like Gagosian, you get more, um, more classical stuff, but was that your taste as well? You know, because there's, I, a, there's sometimes a difference between what you can use as a do as a business model and then what you personally have your taste as. And yeah. and maybe they align and maybe they don't. There's a Venn diagram, perhaps, where they cross over. There is. And and I was, I mean, I, don't, I didn't know a lot about my taste at that point. I knew I liked Kirk's art. I knew mm -hmm. I liked Kirk's art more than I liked a lot of your so, sort of standard Deseret Book Fair. Um, I couldn't have really even described in, you know, uh, sort of informed terminology or whatever what it was I liked about Kirk's art, but I, I knew I liked it a lot. Um, and, and it, you know, I, I think intuitively I liked figurative work that, um, that deeply engaged abstraction. You know, so what do you do with, but that's okay. not why I was there. I wasn't yeah. there to learn about my taste in art. Oh, right. I was there right. to get a sense of what, like when you walk into gallery after gallery after gallery and they all start to sort of like merge in your head or like, what are the things that they have in common? Are there gallerists or curators who are willing to, to chat with you and talk to you a little bit of how they do what they do? What are their printed materials like? How are they organizing their space? What is, as a, as a customer going into a gallery, what is the typical experience like? Um, and you know, I even chatted with a few artists and, and so it was hugely informative in the sense of j that just like, I felt like after the trip, I felt like I had an awareness of what a gallery is actually supposed to look and feel like. And, um, and, and, and what a really up, you know, up to date sort of serious art gallery, what the total experience is supposed to be like. Um, and then, you know, at that point, Glenn also kind of sat me down and, and he said, you know, there are there are more artists out there than than Kirk Richards and Brian Krishiznik, notwithstanding that obviously those guys are, are extremely important in the Mormon art ecosystem. And so he also spent some time, um, you know, saying these are the artists that you should pay attention to. These are the artists that you should reach out to and try to exhibit in the coming years. Um, and that that'll be a benchmark of how successful you are is whether or not you can actually show some of these some of these folks and Wait, so a benchmark <clears throat> of how successful you are mean meaning if you're able to attract them yeah. to actually do a show with where you are and 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 do shows that they're satisfied with that they're happy with well who are some of those artists um <clears throat> valerie atkinson um annie poon uh casey jack smith lane twitchell um, who are some others that he, uh, uh, and, and these, and these are all artists that I have shown, uh, and then some others that I haven't shown as well. Um, uh, Daniel Everett, BYU, the photographer was one mm -hmm. that he, he emphasized. Um, so I've got a question about this. This, this is, a. You know, I think just on the surface, if you were to if, if you were to tell somebody, I'm looking at work that is not necessarily in the mainstream, the Deseret Book Art is yeah, using your term. It's not mainstream. And I'm gonna try and attract some of these figures who have national reputations mm -hmm. 
to do a show or an international reputation is to do a show in Provo uh-huh. at, at, at a, at, at a, uh, to, to an audience that I would argue, I mean, you tell me you had built up uh, a kind of uh, momentum. You said with this, with this uh, group that had been meeting on a regular basis, discussing authors and Mormon scholarship. Yeah. It, what was the, was there, is there an audience for work that is more contemporary, uh, um, more abstract, more experimental than the typical um, Mormon religious figurative painting that immediately gravitated to your work? I think and, there, I think there is, there is an audience, um, and it's it, it's interesting because you know I feel like it's a small audience. It's a it's a sort of niche, um, you know, net, network of potential customers or whatever. But they're willing to buy original art. I mean, the 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 audience that the Deseret Book style art appeals most to are the audience that are, that are willing to buy prints, you know, nicely framed prints. Yeah. Um, there's a much smaller audience of people that are willing to um, that are willing to to purchase original art. And one of the things that I have to balance is showing um, these higher profile artists who have spent years sort of developing and earning their substantial market value. But, but you know, then they, they're producing work that very, very few people can, can afford. And then showing lesser known artists, artists who aren't priced as aggressively, uh, but there's a wider base, there's a wider potential customer base for those folks. So can you give us an example of a work that maybe we can put up on the site to go along with this that that would be indicative of something that was, you know, it was it was an original work of art. It was something that was uh, that was atypical compared to what a typical Mormon yeah. uh, audience would be, uh, our work would be, and that you felt like when you put it out there, you didn't know what you didn't know what the reaction would be, and you were it maybe had an experience or something that surprised you with who came out of the woodwork looking for it. Um. Yeah, off the, off the top of my head. I mean, on the first first half of the question, you know, the the the, the question of how are people going to respond to this work? Um, may, maybe I mentioned two artists here. Um, one is Lane Twitchell, uh, an artist who was raised in Utah, uh, has been working out of out of Brooklyn for a long time now, um, and 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 is you know a, a not insubstantial figure in the in the fine art world outside of mormondom um for a while he was the artist that sort of every mormon artist wanted to be when they when they grew up because you know he had he had made it in the real world and he had a a, i think he had a period of time where he wasn't um showing as much and producing as much and in the last few years he's become much more productive and um he reached out to me a couple of years ago. And this about, is this is an artist who's known for his work doing designs for Starbucks. Yeah, I mean, he did he did the Starbucks thing, you know, yeah. and and that's you know he there was a Vogue magazine spread on him in like yeah. two thousand or something. He's he he was kind of a big deal, and he initially reached out to me um, in part based on a reference from Glenn because you know they're both in New York and they know each other. And he was just trying to clear out some storage space, and he had some works that he thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe you could consign some of this stuff. Not do an exhibition or anything, but you know, you can, 
you can probe your Rolodex and see if anybody might be interested in any of this stuff. And I sold a couple of his pieces to collectors. And then a while later, he said, let's do a show. And so and this, that, that kind of meets the requirement of the Glenn Nelson challenge. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? Which is this idea, can you do a show? Yeah. This, that, was, this was basically a year and a half into the enterprise. Lane reaches out to me and says, hey, can we do a show? And initially, he was thinking, let's just do mostly works on paper because that's going to be a lot easier to transport. But I went out and visited him, went to a studio where he was doing these big paintings. And, and seeing them up close in person was just, you know, it, it was quite something. And, and I thought, we've, we've got to figure out a way to get these transported. We've got to figure out a way to actually have this, the show center around these larger works, and then we can still show them. The works on paper so we, we we can put up one or two of these large paintings of, of lanes and people can kind of see but this is not this is not the kind of art that you would expect to to have any kind of deep resonance among your your standard mormon art consumers you know challenging stuff um but but really really gorgeous stuff um and and so you know we did the exhibition we did it last january so you know 15 months ago and, and it was really successful. I mean, in part because, um, you know, Lane had c c existing collectors that were already passionate about his work outside of the Mormon ecosystem. And in part because it introduced, uh, you know, local, local people to his work. And so it was, it was sort of split evenly. There were, there was some, uh, there was some strong response from, um, people inside the, art, the Mormon art community who had never really seen so much of his work up close in person like that. And then um, we sold a couple of paintings to um, the Zomlin Getz collection in, in Munich um, who had acquired one of his paintings a decade or so ago. Did they acquire it because, did it have, did, did the show have any particularly Mormon themes or was it just that he was an LDS artist? It wasn't, it wasn't even either of those things actually. Yeah. In the case of the Getz collection, it was just that they liked his work and they collected his work before. And I think, I think that the curator there has, has a particular fondness for more abstract work that's yeah. geometrically based. So th this is a question that I have, um, and I don't know um, how to best phrase it, but it's, it's, I've got two aspects of it that I that I want to ask. Um, here, here's the basic question: What is the what is the benefit of Mormon in marketing art, and 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 the fact that meaning in the sense that um, this is all of a sudden valuable to you as a Provo audience because it is made by somebody who's Mormon. It is. You know what I mean? That that which and is that's, that's part of the answer to the question. Which can be incredibly superficial or incredibly meaningful. It can be it's, it's both, a spectrum, yeah. right? Mormons like to claim they're famous people, you know. And when, when somebody's really good at something, and Mormons find out that somebody's a Mormon, that Mormons want to claim that, sort of irrespective of. That's the one situation where it doesn't really matter what kind of Mormon you are. Like yeah. you may not be very active or whatever. You may be, um, you, you, you know, you may you you may even produce work that Mormons that doesn't read as Mormon or that Mormons might find aesthetically uncomfortable or something. And but for you, if you, you're a Mormon, Mormons want to lay claim to you. You're open to all of it. If you have an art, to you, it's more important that the artist is a serious artist. It seems like it is then. And, and maybe there's also this aspect of let's explore this theme. Do you find that artists, and, and there is, are some artists that I've shown that aren't Mormon, but are Utah. 
Interesting. So if they, if there's a Utah connection, and then I've, I'm doing a little I'm a little experiment right now, which is just to see uh, if I can test the limits of this a little bit. I've got some stuff consigned at the gallery right now. It's just upstairs. We have sort of a, an anti gallery upstairs. Uh, these these are paintings by uh, a, a Jewish artist from Southern California, who's obviously not Mormon and not Utah, but I still think his work may may resonate and it may resonate in part because of the Jewishness. Yeah, you and I could had both talked about this idea that Mormons just think that they're they're kind of Jew anyway. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a it, it, I have I have a really funny story that that I that I tell that I think captures this and it and it involves a, a colleague of mine um, who's a, a Mormon anthropologist who himself has a colleague who's a Jewish anthropologist and every year all the anthropologists in the in you know the United States get to Mar- get, get together for the, a AAA conference, the American Anthropological Association uh, annual conference, and it's this ridiculously huge meeting with thousands of people, and it's overpriced to attend and sort of frustrating, but kind of indispensable at the same time. And every year, all the Mormon anthropologists get together for like a, they like rent a room, one of the conference rooms, and they have to do it like really early in the morning because that's the only time that's available. And they get together and they talk Mormon anthropology. And uh, my friends, the, the, the friend in question um, had, had been spending time the previous evening with this Jewish colleague of his. And, uh, and the, the, this Jewish anthropologist had gotten a, a little bit tipsy. And, and so my, my Mormon anthropologist friend kind of took him back to the hotel settled him in it was pretty late and then he had to get up early to come to the meeting so the next morning there he's at the meeting with mormon anthropologists and this guy just walks in he knows where he is and his his jewish friend walks in and um and his turns out is still a little drunk and he so he's sort of sitting there and he's you know he's listening he's paying attention he's responding and he's talking a little too loud and my friend is like you you gotta calm down you can't you can't like you can't act like this you can't you can't do this stuff these these people are mormons and the guy goes that's fine mormons think they're jews anyway (laughs) you know this uh reminds me of a uh i'm of jewish descent Uh um raised in the church father um jewish and uh we have a we have a lot of jewish client uh people and friends that we know and relatives yeah and we had one say you know the difference between jews and mormons is there's probably a lot of these kinds of things. Huh. But he said the difference is, is that both think they're right. That's what's the same. Undeniably believe they have the truth about uh-huh. everything. Yeah. But Jews are aggressive, and they'll tell you to your face. Mormons are passive-aggressive, and they just assume you'll come around to their way of looking at things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a <laughs> And bad... so in that story, he's drunk, and he's saying, eh, you'll, you're, <laughs> he's telling you exactly aggressively what he's saying. Yeah. Just... And all the Mormons in the room are thinking... You know, if you just sober up and be Mormon, he would understand that we're doing the right thing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it just encapsulates that dynamic perfectly. This gets back to a question. That I want to get back to this idea of um, of Mormon identity in, in... I don't want to use the word marketing, but it does it, it does come to I, I think of it, I mean, it's... it's, 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 it's Mormon community building, and frankly, it's also... That's a better way of saying it. Like to be fair, it's also trying to earn a living off of Mormon community building. So there's this there's this idea that that uh, has come out in 19th century studies quite a bit, um, not just in art history but in sociology, 
about the idea of building a, com- a permanent community uh-huh. and that every nation in the 19th century was working very hard to identify what its mythical permanent community was. And it was reaching back in time and going forward. So George Washington, the cherry tree, um, Abraham Lincoln, these were all members of the pantheon of the American culture. Right. And that's a kind of community building. But it also means that whoever is invited or self-selects to go into the community is kind of outing themselves or being outed. Yeah. And I use that term um, quite deliberately because I, I, having interviewed in this podcast a lot of artists occasionally behind the scenes or even in the interview, mm-hmm. some people are uncomfortable with coming on a show called Mormon visual culture right? because they're worried about the idea of branding you know, themselves. I'm known. And so on the first version of the question I asked you was about people buying it because it's Mormon. Another yeah. one is you're going to these artists, some of them with national and international reputations who aren't know. It's probably a surprise to a lot of listeners mm-hmm. that one of the major designers behind Starbucks coffee and, and artists has Mormon background. Yeah. Right. The question is, does he, do you ever run into this with artists who say, you know what? Written vision. I don't want my whole, my, my art pigeonholed be, as Mormon. Yeah. Art. I don't want to be pigeonholed as a Mormon. Or is, or is that something that's melting away and you're part of that melting away? You know, I, I hate to put it this crassly, but if you sell their work, they're cool. <laughs> yeah. Like, like honestly, honestly, because they, they know that they know that what I'm doing on the one hand is appealing to the Mormon community on sort of the basis of Mormon solidarity. But they also know that I'm kind of doing it from the margins a little bit. Yeah. So the, so that the coming and doing uh, a, a sort of properly curated exhibition at Written Vision isn't the same thing as turning over one of your images to Deseret Books so that they can mass produce it or something. Yeah. And so there, there's a level of comfortability there. Like, like, like I remember having this conversation conversation with Lane, with Lane Twitchell, who's no longer active in the church. Um, and, and it hasn't been for some time and sort of, you know, asking him about like managing this. And, and on the one hand, there was a, I, I could tell there was a real reluctance about like wanting, like n- not wanting to have himself branded in the wider art world as a Mormon artist. Yeah. But on the other hand, he was like, sell the work, Brad. Sell it. I sell remember it having Mormons. a conversation with, it, yeah. with Vern Swanson when he approached Wayne Tebow about doing a, mm-hmm. a, a, a retrospective at the Springville Museum of Art. And here's somebody who's done retrospectives at museums all over the world. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. not been active for a very long time. I don't even know if he ever was. I think he, he was, was probably just like raised in I think some he part, was right? raised in Southern California and Arizona or something, had Mormon family, Mormon roots, but I don't know that he was ever really a... Yeah, Mormon, Mormon. So, so this goes to to another question I have, which is, let's put on your anthropologist hat right uh-huh. now, right? And and maybe this is a mixed metaphor for anthropology, <laughs> but but there's there's clearly something going on. I don't know if if written vision could have been around ten years ago. It I don't seems think, like I don't something think it that's of the moment. I think it very. In fact, that was that was a big part of the decision making process for us was looking around. It wasn't. Among all the different people that I talked to, some of them were also people that were working, like Courtney Kendrick, yeah. who was working really hard. She's working, you know, in, in the mayor's office, but she's also founded the Rooftop Concert Series, and so she's very much invested in this like revitalization in Provo that's happening, which is an economic but also a cultural revitalization. And I guess the question is, is what? And I don't know if you can put your thumb on it, but if you were to take an ice core sample. Mm-hmm. Of, of the time that we're in right now and project yourself 100 years from now and you're taking an ice core sample and you're saying, oh, yep, 
I can identify what's going on in this in in, in the atmosphere uh-huh. right now in Provo, in Utah, in Mormonism. What is it that is making it possible for written vision? To, to have a community of people who are coming out and buying works and artists participating, maybe in a way that 10 years ago didn't exist. What is it that's different now? Okay, so I think there are two factors here. I mean, and this is obviously going to be a huge oversimplification. And both of them ha- actually have to do with the sort of the origin story of, of, of written vision and, and how it's, it has developed. Um, so one is the increasingly sort of conspicuous place occupied by column freelance Mormons, right? That there's the, the, the online world, the world, the social media world has made it possible for um, Mormons who may not f- perfectly fit, fit a kind of traditional mold, but are still Mormon to um, develop a sense of community and solidarity with each other. And so there's this sense that being Mormonism is what it what it can or should mean to be a Mormon <clears throat> is maybe stretching its legs a little bit. There's a little bit more room around the margins to be, um, uh, you know, more intellectually engaged Mormon. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who's uh, who's who's Jewish, and he's uh, back to the Jewish thing, mm-hmm. and uh, he's he's on J date. He just got divorced recently. He's dating uh-huh. again, and when you go on to J date. And you, you, people are very because you're. It's a Jewish dating site. Uh-huh. They want to know what kind of Jew you what are. What kind of Jew? And, Not just are you Jewish, but what kind? When of I Jew? talked to him, he said there were 36 different kinds of of uh, permeations of Judaism that you could identify yourself yeah. from Orthodox to entirely atheistic and secular. And and I don't know if we have the equivalent of that spread. It's much more ad hoc in Mormonism, but it's definitely there. And a big part of the way that I that that you know so so. I come back from New York and I go to Ryan and I say, yeah, I want to do this. Let's kind of partner up. This you, is Ryan, Ryan your friend who's yeah. moving to, who's to, moving to, to Manti. And, and I say, rather than just walk away from this, I mean, I know you're going to be re- doing your thing in Manti and stuff, but let's, let's rebrand, you know, so we're going to change it from Zion books to writ- written vision. And I want to give a big plug here to Rusty Clifton, um, who, who did, uh, helped with the brand design. Um, is a good friend and one of the coolest names of any store and branding ever. Writ and Vision. It was killer. Yeah. Well, and the, and the name. So the funny thing is, the name itself. Um, I literally crowdsourced Facebook for ideas, and I narrowed it down based on friends' recommendations. And a woman named uh, uh, Anna, a friend of mine named Anna, recommended the name. And then I went to Rusty with a handful of names, and we narrowed it down. And and then he designed the brand and it's and he did incredible work on it, but the the idea there was you've got this sort of the community building the community sustaining side building a kind of thoughtful intellectual Mormon community and we wanted it to be a space that felt like I mean as cliche as it sounds especially at this literally this moment we wanted it to be a safe space, <laughs> which is to say we wanted it to be a space where traditional Mormons. Um, uh, uh, ex-Mormons, queer Mormons, feminist Mormons, um, a- active and inactive Mormons, intellectual Mormons, rank-and-file Mormons, every kind of Mormon that you can imagine, Sunstone Mormons, uh, Maxwell Institute Mormons, old-school farms Mormons, you know, whatever, any signifier you want to throw out there, that they all felt like they could have like a comfortable and uh, 
productive conversation with each other in that space and that it wasn't excluding of any one particular type. But it also wasn't just sort of, you know, like like the, the default traditional Mormon of say of say Deseret Book. So so you're doing this and well did you it, finish did you finish your thought? I'm sorry. Well so because I do have a question, the, but, but, okay, but finish so, your thought. Yeah, let me finish this. So so the idea there is then you're you're kind of, you know, with it's still half bookstore. When you walk in, it still feels like a bookstore. There's beautiful art on the walls, but it still feels like a book. And a bookstore is more inviting, I think, than a gallery. And the, the gallery, yeah. you have to sort of walk through into the back. And the gallery space is larger, but but the the cozy little bookstore thing up front is, is kind of nice. And then we have these regular events. And they mostly are around Mormon books and and sort of Mormon intellectual life. And, and so there's a community making part of it and th- and that, 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 it, that works, that feeds and is fed by the art side of the gallery. Well, this reminds me very much of kind of an 18th to 19th century salon that really is missing in our culture. There's That's a part of where, what, yeah. In, within Mormonism uh-huh. um, or any religion, Sunday isn't enough to explore big ideas and it's especially not enough to explore for the people that feel like they're a little bit more on the margins yeah there's a deficiency like they still go to church but they don't get the same thing always in terms of like being able to stretch their mind out being able to explore ideas um and 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 so you're providing a kind of it's almost like um it's almost like a uh an institute for Freelance Mormons. This then, this then is a question. It's different than the one I was going to ask. Because institute is supposed to be as much about community building yeah. and sort of a social dimension as it is about learning the gospel, and, and that's guess, kind of what's going on here too. I remember having a conversation with David Erickson, who owns Erickson Fine Art, and yeah. uh, has been successful in, in over the years and a real, real, really involved in the community. And I was talking with him and with with Anthony Christensen of, mm-hmm. of Anthony's Fine Art, my father. Yeah, yeah. Um, who's been doing this for 30 years. They've been working together. They know each other for a long time, different galleries. And they they mentioned this idea that if you have an art show, mm-hmm. the people who are going to be coming are school teachers. Uh-huh. And the reason why is because school teachers are curious, they're engaged, they're intellectual, but they're not necessarily the same thing as the people that are the business drivers of your market. No, they're not. And so the question is, is how do you... What is the difference between having a community that's getting together and having great discussions and what drives your business or is there a difference there is a huge difference and and and, and these are things that I, I i i do want these things to sort of drive and be driven by each other to be, to exist in this kind of feedback loop but my business model is uh sell original art to rich people to subsidize community building you know that's what this, that's what um a lot of people i think in this community and i don't think it's just this community I think that is generally a model for how arts organizations work. It has to be, and it's kind of except instead of instead of it's almost like I have an uh, uh, an arts organization that's that's um, focused on community building, but instead of fundraising ninety percent of the time, I'm trying to sell expensive original art 90 percent. so it's a kind of whale hunting model for every like i'll do a book event and it'll be well attended i'll have adam miller come and 100 people show up and it'll be a great discussion and i'll sell a bunch of copies of books and make six or eight hundred dollars that evening but i would have to i would have to do six or eight of those a month to even pay the rent right those like 
the, the and that's basically a wedding reception model. Yeah, right? and that's, that's, that's that does not. But I sell a couple of paintings a month, and 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 the, in other words, Adam Miller doesn't pay the bills. I mean, he comes as close as any one author to doing it because he's kind of a rock star, but Adam Miller doesn't pay the bills. Selling, selling Elaine Twitchell pays the bills. So here, here's another question. When you're, and then allows me to do the, the Adam Miller stuff. Okay. And, then I, and then I still try to make the two work. So like this week, this is an interesting week because we have an event this week, but it's an art event, right? So we've got a show opening um, Friday. What with, is it? It's Jackie Leishman. And she's another example of, of this dynamic that we're talking about. She's an artist who has th done really well in an, uh, an art market and an art ecosystem outside of Mormonism. But she's Mormon, but she's from Southern California. And, and she's been very successful, and she does not really produce Mormon art. And what, is, what does her work look like? It's very abstract. It's usually paper-based. There's a lot of kind of collage. Um, she, she occasionally works in more representational or figurative stuff. Um, she uh, kind of experiments with um, the line that separates uh, drawing or painting from sculpture, but it's still all sort of wall-based work. Um, and she engages with a lot of natural subjects. She's been doing a, 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 a series for a long time on Yosemite National Park. And she's doing this show for us that's, that's sort of loosely based on creation, um, but it's not really a theologically engaged show. She's more thinking about, um, as much as anything else, she's sort of thinking about science questions. And then it's, it's subdivided into sort of groupings, except rather than basing those groupings on like a day or period of creation, they're based in elements. So she's got one section that's about water and one section that's about plants and one section that's about the moon and one section that's about Eve. And, you know, uh, uh, just to give a few examples. And so we're doing an event this, this week uh, where there's a panel discussion with academics um, uh, that, that aren't art historians, but that are art literate scholars in Mormon studies talking with Jackie about her work, about what it means, about, you know, whatever they want to talk about. Um, and, you know, this, it's, it's breaking the mold a little bit. I mean, we've done things like this before, but these are kind of the exception. These get the, get this community together for, a you know, for an event that's a panel discussion, but it's about art rather than about somebody's new book that just came out or something. So we're trying to make um, Mormon intellectuals, Mormon uh, bibliophiles, Mormon book collectors into, um, you know, fans and... Uh, so you're deliberately going outside of, like, the, the expertise of art historians sometimes yeah to, to just, kind of broaden just because we're trying it. to make the communities merge if, if you if you're a book collector i want you to start collecting art if you're an art collector i want you to start collecting books and i want you to get involved in the conversations that are happening in the mormon intellectual how world. much of that is a reflection of of you don't feel like there are art historians who could talk about those things or how much of it is the idea that you're just trying to broaden um, I think there are or, historians. I mean, certainly you could talk about those things, but I think there are I, definitely some good people at BYU who could talk about those things. Um, uh, and, and, and probably some of the other schools around here too, who could, who could, you know, make a meaningful contribution to a discussion, not just about the art, 
from a from a critical or art historical perspective or whatever, yeah. but specifically engaging the the question of meanings within a Mormon, you know, uh, framework or something like that. The the other th- so that's the, the one dimension you a- you asked yeah. about. You know, um, what is it that makes this possible? And uh, and 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 part of it is this was a really roundabout way of saying the development of this kind of like slightly alternative or like freelance. Mm-hmm not not entirely conforming community of mormons who have a sense of community with each other and wanting to wanting to create a kind of cultural gathering space um in which all these different like the 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 online and the intellectual mormon world is kind of balkanized but like this is like a neutral zone where like people come and they actually talk with each other um and then having that feed but also be fed, nurtured, like financially nurtured by selling art and kind of trying to have these communities like, you know, again, engage with each other. And then the other is um, I'll go much I'll do a much more focused answer and I'll say literally Kirk Richards, which is to say that Kirk is doing something very interesting to, to Mormon visual culture and to Mormon art and to and to our sense of what it means to be Mormon even. Because our sense of what it means to be Mormon, our sense of um, uh, uh, the sacred in Mormonism is in part visual. And it in part involves representations of God, representations of sacred events, um, representations of, uh, in particular of Jesus. And, and our sense of what, of, of, of a, our intuitive sense that's dr- driven very much just by like, you know, sort of productive and distributive processes and historical processes that I'm sure you understand much more uh, in much better detail than I do. But this there, there's a very much a kind of an official um, sense of what is devotional art, like what is acceptable, what can be what what can if, if I'm looking at an image, am I allowed to feel for, for this image to be spiritually uplifting? Am I allowed to have this image spiritually nurture me? This yeah. is a really big question because for the most part, um, you know, up until the 1960s, um, uh, President David O. McKay had a moratorium on the depicting of Christ. Yeah. He also was the one who had the moratorium on... He changed our perception of crosses. Crosses, Christ. And, and, and Christ in general. Uh-huh. And, and, we used to, this, and we used to not visually represent iconic Mormon things like the first vision and stuff as well. No. And there's, and it seemed like there was a real period where there, there's the story that Arnold Freeberg used to tell. I, I, I knew him and uh-huh. um, interviewed him a few times. And he said uh, when he was doing the book of Mormon paintings, he had experimented with some 86 subjects, uh-huh. went page to page to get the 12 that he was going to land on. And he knew the one that he had to do was, um, Christ arriving in the Americas because it's so central, right, to the the whole notion of 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 the Book of Mormon. But he's and so the distant images. in the actual image, and so he's he, almost he, not represented. He had this idea that he sketched, and I've got the original sketch for it of uh, people coming to Christ at the temple, the the temple ruins, uh-huh. and touching his hands and sticking their hands into his side, just like an old um, doubting Thomas old master image is kind of what he was looking at. Yep. And David O. McKay said, absolutely not, no because way. you uh, you depict him, you bring him down to our level. We don't mention him with great frequency because uh, 
Um, it's disrespectful. Just that's why we say Melchizedek priesthood. Yep. And uh, and and Arnold Freeberg, who was not very deferential to leadership in the church, um, he said, um, "I said to David O. McKay, to President McKay, um, if you." Uh, if you believe Mormon doctrine, then when you see him, we'll be like him. We are created in his image. And when David O. McKay died, I won. He did. And, and that's that's what he said. And then there's this idea still of you'd never put a... In modern times, uh -huh. not that it hasn't been done, but in the post-David O. McKay era, you still don't put an image behind the sacrament table. Right. You don't put one in the celestial room. Mm -hmm. You don't put one in devotional ritual spaces. You surround devotional spaces with it. So, you, you know, the foyers are filled with stuff, but not very much stuff in the chapels, certainly not up behind the sacrament table. I or the rarely podium. see in a, in a chapel a painting that's bigger than the chalkboard. The chalkboard's yeah. more important than the image. But even the, even the chapels that, are, you know, e even the meeting houses that have Minerva Tykerts, they're not, you know, yeah. up, up behind the podium or whatever. And, and this is something we should, I would love to do another discussion on, because uh -huh. I'm, I'm currently working on a book called Mormon Visual Culture that's about this idea of how do we use these images in ritual spaces? Yep. And when you talk about Kirk Richards and what he's doing, he has he, gone beyond the idea of this is uh, an aid to the text as a as an illustrative um, lesson aid yep. to exploring ideas that I wouldn't say, I don't know if there's anything that's explicitly forbidden, but it's definitely outside of cultural norms. He's absolutely, and, and the thing is, he's not just challenging cultural norms, he is extending them. Um, Can I mean, you give me an example of that? Well, just the incorporation of uh, of, of, of sort of expressionist, um, you know, stylistic norms. And, and you could and, say that people like Trevor Southey and Gary Ernest Smith and Dennis Smith were doing this. They were, but they weren't. Too. They weren't doing it in a way that had the widespread appeal. No, like, and, and you, it was definitely you, a time of were they outside of the the cultural acceptance at the time. Mm -hmm. yeah, right? they, yes, yeah, absolutely. But Kirk has been able to get his stuff into Deseret Book, yeah. which, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure there are artists out there who are, who might, who might be, you know, quietly critical or that or whatever, but I, I don't think you can overstate the significance of what that means, that he has been able to take much, much more expressivist, um, uh, ap approaches to depicting the sacred and normalize those yeah. and, 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 and yeah. to make it so that you can now look at an image of Christ that is so abstracted that he doesn't even have a face and have a spiritual experience with it rather than find it, rather than wonder if you're supposed to, rather than think maybe it's sacrilegious, maybe I, right. I'm not comfortable. He has changed what Mormons are comfortable looking at and having spiritual experiences with. And, and, and he's continuing to sort of operate right on that margin. And so Kirk in some ways represents exactly what I'm trying to do. And 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 what I'm and I, and I'm trying in some ways to just make a space for myself within the larger space that he was already in the process of creating, and not just him, but I'm just using him as a kind of a placeholder here. But it there is cultural change occurring, and 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 I want written vision to benefit from, but also contribute to that cultural change. Our shifting sense of what is interesting and not interesting, what is powerful and not powerful, what is even spiritually evocative or, or spiritually sustaining, what is devotional and not devotional, what is holy and not holy. And so there's always this like tension between 
Do I show um, easy work that is that reads very obviously as Mormon, like Kirk's work, yeah. which I sometimes do. I'll show Kirk. I'll show Caitlin Connolly. Um, you know, there I'll, I'll, I'll show artists that are that are clearly doing Mormon art. Do and and then and then how much of that can I also like? How much can I also show work that doesn't look at like like it yeah. is way outside of people's yeah. range of expectations and still so, have them have them go oh that's that's cool i didn't that's amazing i want to i want to end with a with a question about something that is uh um that goes along with this kirk and this kind of pushing of 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 uh, borders and not just being a part of the conversation but pushing the conversation mm-hmm. um and you got to correct me if I'm wrong as I'm as I'm leading up to this question as I'm, I'm contextualizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, um, maybe not even a few, it was just a couple of years ago. Uh, Kirk Richards did this image that was picked up by some people as being controversial. Oh, yeah, was, I mean, I, I think a, it's it I think a, it's controversial. Yeah, it was a black topless Eve, and and. Um, from his perspective, because I've had conversations with him, sure. he thought that he was broadening the conversation and thinking in terms of, um, look, this idea of a white, um, 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 a Western-centric Eve mm-hmm. is is something that is is something we need to explore. But it was seen and as and uh, and legitimately seen by a lot of people as being one of. Um, here's a white man doing female nudity of an ethnic minority. Yeah. And, and not he, frankly, not just any ethnic minority, specifically a black woman, which specifically was, which was a black part woman. of the part of the problem. And then you and that that wasn't something that was originally shown at Written Vision, I don't believe. But no, then there it was. was a, so I want to give oh, you so I want to give you the background. Because and, and then there was a second show where he brought it up again and got more controversy. But he contextualized it within a larger sense of 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 exploring the idea. Yeah. So ha, here here's the question, though. Here's the question. Uh-huh. The question is. Um, when you, I don't think there's any other place really currently in the ecosystem of LDS art, uh-huh. not BYU, not the church history museum, not, um, heirloom gallery in Provo, not a lot of, not there, there, there are not a lot of places where a show like that could happen. It seems like this is a place that is specifically occupied by written vision. Mm-hmm. And it is one of those things that, that, um, is 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 uh, going to draw controversy, and yeah. it's a role that you play. And I guess the question is, where what was as you're putting this show up, and you're giving a lot of leash to the artist you're working with mm-hmm. to do this. Yeah, how did you personally see your role in managing the controversy that was around it, and explaining it, and explaining why you were why you were. Uh, Doing it and being a part of it, and in that answer, give us what I give, left out the of backstory. Yeah, yeah, so, so the backstory. What I left. We did a we did an exhibition at the start of 2015, 2016, when they, when they opened the new temple in Provo, right? They did Provo an open, City Center, yeah. Provo City Center, open house. Yeah, so you're this two, two, blo- two you're like a two block away ago. from it. Right? Yeah, we're just right down the road, and so I, I did a big group exhibition where I asked. A dozen artists to make, uh, uh, you know, uh, small contributions to a show that was sort of loosely themed around the temple, and they could do whatever they want. They could do something that was, they could do 
images of the temple. I mean, about half the work in the show was actually temple images, and then some of it was very abstract. And you know, it was a, it was a really diverse group of artists um, in terms of style, in terms of age, in terms of uh, you know ha having both male and female artists, and having traditional versus very contemporary kind of modern work. And and everybody just showed up with their work, and it was it was a really cool show. But Kirk just showed up. I didn't know anything in advance he was sort of playing it very close to the chest and he just shows up with eve um did you immediately think of it as polemical when you saw it well i thought it was uh, i thought of it as polemical but only kind of from a conservative side that he was really pushing the envelope in terms of depicting eve as black and sort of uh depicting the the nudity in a very um straightforward kind of in your face way and i know that kirk had been one of the things that he was trying to push back at he wasn't just trying to push back against the sort of the eurocentric white eve he was also trying to push back against the the, the kind of implicit prohibition on bodies in mormon art and so he was he was deliberately trying to so kind from of, his perspective he's doing a service but he's also being a provocateur, and he, and he knew it. He knew he was being a provocateur, and that's actually where some of the problem came in. So the, the exhibition was up. It was up for a couple of months. It was one of the – usually our exhibitions are just a calendar month, just month after month after month. This one was up for two and a half months. Um, and then and there was a lot of conversation around it, um, a lot of conversation that included me and Kirk, but some very, like um, – very focused and very poignant and I think honestly very fair criticisms of the work. Um, and I know that Kirk thought that they were fair too. I mean, not only did I have conversations with him about it, but I just, I saw the way he was sort of interacting with his critics. Yeah. Anyone who knows Kirk knows that he is very engaged with seeing how people react to his work yep. and very thoughtful. He is not by any means a, the kind of person who says, this is how it is. and There are other artists who are just like that, who are like, you know what, I'm not going to, I don't care, I'm not going to listen, it's my art, it's my thing. People are going to say what they're going to say, whatever. No, Kirk actually like solicited feedback on it. And I do think, again, the criticisms were um, very valid. Um, and in particular, uh, as, as far as I could read it, um, th there, were, there were sort of two fo focal points on the criticism. One was on... <clears throat> a kind of lacking awareness on Kirk's part of the history of depicting black women, um, and in particular, a kind of, um, a kind of visual history of depicting black women on slave blocks and slave auctions and the posture, like the, just the fact that she was sort of facing forward with her head turned to the side was unwittingly in, in engaging an extremely painful, extremely exploitative visual history of depicting black women, including depicting them naked. Um, but then there was also another dimension of it, which was the sort of in-your-face quality of the nudity. Like it was very, um, it, it, it wasn't abstracted. It was very uh, sort of, you know, uh, realistic, um, anatomically detailed, um, you know, it, was it wasn't just, just it, a couple of circles no, on, no, on a it torso. It wasn't just sort of a gesture toward nudity or something, or it wasn't abstracted nudity. It was highly realistic. And and so it, in part because of that, in part because Kirk was focused on, um, like he wanted the nudity to be very front and center and to be very kind of in your face, um, he was also then unwittingly... Um, 
participating in in a kind of larger problem in in including contemporary even popular visual culture but like the exoticization of the black female body and and of and of black female nudity um and so it was just um these these were significant mistakes and it was kind of interesting to watch it unfold because at first at first it happened at first the, the you know the image got out there and um overwhelmingly positive response right just people you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shares on social media and stuff but it was it was mostly progressive white people responding positively to it and it generated seeing this is oh my heavens we finally finally, have somebody who says eve wasn't i had a conversation with with jeff hine once who Mm -hmm. said um you know, there were no recessive genes in the Garden of Eden. There's no way they could be blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so there's there's kind of that idea of yes, diversity. Yeah, and that and that it's and that it's kind of a restoring of the story to an African context and that kind of thing. And so they could see like all of all of the progressive things that Kirk was trying to do, that people responded to really well. And then black women started saying, "Hold on a second, hold hold up a bit. There are some problems here." Like. Yeah props to Kirk for trying to do what he's trying to do and whatever, but like there are some problems here. Yeah. And so this conversation started and extended. I mean, there was, there was a panel on it at Sunstone that summer. Um, and you know, it was a, and, and, and I think was it was your act- role in this to facilitate the controversy in a way that was opening. Cause if you're doing this place where you're a neutral party trying to have a conversation with a broad swath of more mm-hmm. people identifying as Mormon, are you are you there defending Kirk, or are you just there to represent and filter all, and not filter, but represent and voice is the word I'm looking for all of the the diverse ideas? Or you just I didn't, sit back I didn't and take, let it happen? I didn't take it as my no. I didn't just sit back. I engaged, but I didn't take it as my responsibility to defend Kirk. I, I, either either he was going to let it, just let it stand on its own, or he was going to defend himself. But I did take it as my responsibility to try to actually understand. And, and, and listen to where the criticisms were coming from, um, in part because I was going to continue. I was going to have an ongoing relationship with Kirk, and he was going to continue to show art there. And I felt like this was something that did it hurt his career? Th- that we needed to learn from. I don't think it hurt his career. No, I don't think it hurt him. Um, but so then, a year and a half later, he comes in, and and this is it's funny because this is going to echo something that you said a, a, before. But you like you know, there's not really any space where some of the any other space where some of these kind of things can happen. And Kurt came to me and said, "Can I do a show at your gallery that I wouldn't be willing to do anywhere else?" And I said, "Yeah, you can. I mean, that's exactly what I want you to do." Um, but again, he played everything really close to the chest. And then, um, you know, a few weeks before he started sending me some images and stuff and it was this creation show and it was a really marvelous show. And I was at first a little nervous about it because there was, it, it, it clearly was, uh, sort of built out from that space that, where he, that, that he originated with that Eve painting. You know, it was oh. clearly still an African context. It was clearly still. And, and one of the things like he was he was still trying to push the envelope. So do you he, think do he, you think when you say pushing the envelope that he's because I've, I've heard two two interpretations of it. Uh-huh. One I heard directly from Kirk is I'm trying to contextualize 
what I was doing and, and show my full intent. Yes. And the other one I've heard is he's doubling down. Well, I would say I would say that there's a. Do you see what I mean? Is the difference between those? There, no, there's a huge difference. But I would say that there's actually a third thing. Uh, that, I, I mean, in my experience with Kirk, what he's describing as a contextualizing process is, is definitely a, a factor. But so so what he ends up producing is a, a kind of narrative show, a, a series of paintings that begin with the creation, and it's a god and a goddess. And they're not depicted as black or African, but they're, they're, they're depicted as non-white. I mean, the colors are too sort of like non-realist and, and saturated. And they're, they're, they're blue or they're gray or they're green. But they're, they're clearly depicted as non-white. And, it's, and in every act of creation, it's a god and a goddess. It's a, it's a father and a mother yeah. creating. But then when you get to the creation of Adam and Eve, they are black. Yeah. And they're in, they're in the garden and, and, it's, and, and, and it's more of an African setting, right? But what I was nervous about going into it, I was less nervous about when he actually brought the work in. And that was, and, and, and because what was clear to me was that both of those specific criticisms he had very much taken to heart. So here, here's the question I have, because I can, I, and I, I, I've interviewed Kirk. We didn't talk about this the, at the, the time. There, there is. They, but, they but are, I'll interview yeah. him again, and we'll sure. get his direct intent on this. So I don't want to try and read too much into him. But here, there's this question of, here are two white men mm-hmm. who are putting on this show, yep. are, and, and your role as the gallerist is a question about what is your role in working with an artist who's coming around second time with a subject like this yeah. to, to either do your homework mm-hmm. and to prepare for the, for, for the, for the onslaught that's going to come in. What is written visions role as, well, I didn't as expe- arbiter I, between artist and public? For I this? didn't expect an onslaught. And I don't think that there was an onslaught in the second round to the degree that there was in the first. And in part, because I think, and, and I mean, my, my sort of, my, my sort of takeaway from the whole thing is that this is the way it went. like Kirk. And, and, and I want to clarify. So Kirk did, show the eve painting in this show again right and so you can see the contrast the just the visual aesthetic contrast between what he did and 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 the eve painting wasn't for sale in this in the second show but um it was just displayed but you could really see the contrast um in 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 uh and you you could see that i mean to me it looked like he had very specifically and very emphatically internalized the criticisms and learned from them. And so even though, even though Adam and Eve still are depicted as black, there's not any kind of like provocation in the, in the nudity. There's not any hyperrealism in the nudity. It's much more abstracted. Um, and, and there's an awareness of these sort of visual histories of depicting people of color and especially of depicting black women and black men do you, that, do you, that he was conscious of in composing the paintings in the second show. So what I see is Kirk stepped in it the yeah. first time around. Um, and then th- there were, there were very um, important, not just, not just reasonable, but important. Like if Kirk really yeah. does want to do, and if I want to exhibit, you know, work that that is more that foregrounds diversity, yeah. we have to be very, very aware of the potential pitfalls there. And and so that 
I don't, I'm not just saying that those criticisms were valid. I'm saying that they were essential. Yeah, and, you, and it's my job as a gallerist to not just to take them seriously, but to, if anything, to, to sort of foreground them and to, and to underscore how essential they were, yeah. not just not just to Kirk, but but to me and to what I'm doing in the gallery. So this like, was this show took place in a in a pre Black Lives Matter, pre Me Too movement. Would you do it now the same way that you did before? No, would, I would, would say this show actually took place. It didn't take place. It took place in a pre Me Too movement, but it didn't take place in a pre Black Lives Matter. Oh, it took movement. it took maybe right in the middle of it. Though. Yeah, it was right right in the middle of it. So I would I would say that. Um, uh, I mean, when it comes down to it, there's also this kind of dynamic with the artist and the gallerist, which is just that, like, I'm going to agree to show your work, and then you're going to produce it, and I'm going to show it. It's a relation of trust. It's, it's, a, it's, relation, it's a relationship yeah. of trust. You, you've developed this idea. That I was I was hoping that I wasn't going to, that, that, that Kirk wasn't going to bring work that second time around that was problematic in the same way that 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 first Eve painting was. And so I was relieved and gratified to see, yes, he's still trying to work in this idiom. Yes. Yeah. He's still trying to explore these themes, but he, he clearly to me at least seems to have yeah. taken these criticisms to heart and taken them very seriously yeah. and modified his approach accordingly. Okay. Um, but you know, well, the, even, my, then, my, even then there's going to be a diversity of opinions about that. And I certainly <laughs> like if there's, if if Kirk still needs to learn, if I still need to learn, then then we still need to learn, and I and we well, still in, need to in listen. Well, in my bringing it up is does nothing to do with with saying I think, I think you need to learn this lesson or this because I don't know what the lesson is to learn. It's more of a question of that's part of the problem. When is that you, sometimes the lessons to learn are ones you don't know. Like as a as like a <laughs> a white male in a in a yeah. community that that privileges whiteness and maleness, like you just don't even know the lessons that you need to learn. It's it's more of a question, and the reason why I'm asked asking it, and I think you have answered it, is you occupy a unique and I think very important place in the in the visual culture that's happening right now, mm-hmm. which is, in my opinion, still in an adolescent stage forming itself. It we, is. Have it, we have this we have this culture that's growing up right now. And 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 I see that there's a thinking out loud that's going on and an experimentation that is is going to offend some people. Mm-hmm. It's going to have missteps. It's going to have dramatic successes. It's going to have things that fall flat. And it's not a question of... And it's never going to do any of those things monolithically. It's always going to be rubbing some people no, this way and, and other people this way. it's only in retrospect that you know how it all fits together. It's yeah. right. And, and, and the question isn't trying to identify where it, what it is, what's good, what's bad. It's a question of... Really, just how are you thinking through things? And to me, um, I think that this this very disciplined approach that comes from being an anthropologist and from being an historian gives you a particular way of the way that you think through things. And and uh, and it's 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 fascinating to hear um, you talk it through. Um, and, and I hope that, you know, you feel like you've had an opportunity to, to think it through, not because I'm trying to stoke controversy, no, no, but because I'm trying think to think all. through controversy. I think thinking through controversy is the only real thing you can do. I mean, yeah. I think that if you're, if you're trying to make, ch- if you're trying to be a part of change, you're trying to contribute to change. If you're trying to, um, contextualize what you're doing in the, it, you know, in a larger framework of change, controversy is inevitable. 
and 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 if you think through controversy and if you learn from controversy and if you productively sort of work with controversy that's that's exactly the work that needs to be needs to be done and 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 it's and it's it's very it's not just very complicated in mormonism but it's uh, it's shifting in mormonism i'm going to give you i'm going to give you a, a a nice closing example here okay uh, a little while ago, um, year and a half, maybe a little more than that, um, we did a, a small exhibition with an artist, um, uh, with with a paper artist, an, an origami artist um, at BYU, and it um, we 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 had a we had an opening. Remind where, me the name of the artist because I remember seeing this. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you the name okay. of the artist in a second, and there's a reason why. Okay. Uh, we had an opening in which the artist did a, a big presentation. He kind of he talked about the history of paper folding as an art form. Um, he uh, he talked about uh, he's also a mathematician, so he talked about like mathematical and engineering applications of paper folding. Uh, and then he, and then he presented his work, and his work were all the all these sculptures that depicted kind of the uh, anguish of the, uh, uh, the 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 gay the LGBT. Q, uh, LDS experience, uh, and, and in particular, the, um, the, the anguish of family rejection. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the name of the exhibition, I think, was If Thy Right Hand Offend Thee. And and so there were just these small sculptures that that really just just like overflowing with with pathos these these figurative these very kind of abstract figurative soft line figurative sculptures and um, and, and the and the artist is Matt Gong, Elder Gong's son. Elder Gong's son, yeah, Elder Gong's uh, uh, you know gay out of the closet son who's who's no, no longer at BYU who's graduated and who's, I think, I think teaching at the University of Utah or doing research there or something. He's po- posted at the University of Utah. Part of what was so amazing about that was that uh, then, then uh, set, a member of the, of the 70, of the Quorum of the 70, uh, Elder Gong, came to the opening. Um, and I knew he was a general authority and I knew this was a kind of touchy subject and at the end, there was a Q&A, and he, and he raised his hand, and he asked, he asked a couple of questions, and, and I just didn't know what to expect, but he asked extremely informed, um, extremely interesting, not at all sort of like provocative or it wasn't um, a moralizing questions at all. He asked, he wanted his son to be able to answer interesting questions, and, 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 and you know, he wanted to show him off. He wanted to show off like his mm-hmm. genius, and he wanted to contribute to the discussion in a way that would facilitate that, and that became really clear to me. Um, and then afterward, he came up to me and expressed like very specific, like I can't thank you enough for your your willingness to show Matt's work here, mm-hmm. and it's 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 real, you know. You're not an enfant terrible. He didn't uh-uh. come up and confront you and say, no, "What are you doing?" Nothing but warmth and gratitude from the guy. I mean, I was I was kind of blown away by it. Not knowing at the time that a year and a half later he was going to become an apostle, um, you know, and, and so now I've I've got these like Matt Gong sculptures at the and, and I haven't even like tried to publicize them or anything. Just I've just got a couple of them left over from the show, sitting at the 
sitting at the gallery and it's like, you know, what, what could be more, what, what could better exemplify it? Like these tensions that I'm talking about as sort of like something that's distinctly Mormon, but on the margins and things that are shifting and difficult and maybe controversial and complicated at then, then, you know, these, then these sculptures by the gay son of a newly called Mormon apostle. Well, we'll leave it there. It's been a real privilege to, to talk with you, Brad Kramer. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity, Mike. It's been, been terrific. Yeah, I feel the same way. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture presented by the Zion Art Society. I'd like to thank Brad Kramer for coming and visiting us and telling us about not only the genesis of Written Vision, but also the upcoming show that he has. If you'd like to learn more about that, go to our website, zionartsociety.org. That's zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab. You will also find other interviews that we have done with artists, curators, and scholars, and collectors. Thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Micah Christensen.